like to open up your Bibles, and you'll please turn to Ephesians chapter 6. The scripture reading will come from verses 10 through 13. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Good morning to all. It is a beautiful day and, of course, as always, a wonderful blessing to be able to assemble and to worship our God together, and so we thank him for it. Before we begin our study this morning, I do want to make an announcement. Uh, we are happy to announce that Courtney has a growth of the human variety in her stomach. And so, in about nine months, that'll be uh, coming out, and uh, we would appreciate your prayers that that will all be safe and, of course, COVID-free. All right. History's pages are filled with monumental battles of great consequence. For example, in the year 331 B.C., there was the Battle of Arbella, which was considered to be the most important victory in Alexander the Great's conquest that eventually led to the fall of the Persian Empire. In fact, it was after this battle that Darius III, the Persian king, was murdered by one of his provincial governors. In 202 B.C., there was the Battle of Zama in which the Carthaginian general Hannibal uh, suffered his greatest defeat. He marched 80 war elephants over the Alps in what remains one of the greatest military feats in history. And yet, after marching those elephants over the Alps, the Romans discovered that they could distract them by blowing loud horns. And so when the elephants charged, they simply blew the horns, opened their ranks, and allowed the scared elephants to charge right through them before chasing them off and rendering them completely uh, irrelevant in the battle. And who could forget, of course, the invasion of Normandy in 1944, the largest amphibious invasion in the history of the world with over a million soldiers landing on the coast of Normandy within a month. And of course, this is the invasion that allowed the Allied forces the ability to push the Germans out of France, which uh, tilted or shifted the tide of the war. Many, many battles of consequence have been fought throughout the history of this world, and many of those battles have changed the course of history. But we recognize as Christians that though those battles were indeed important, there is no battle that is more important than the spiritual battle in which we are constantly engaged. In Genesis chapter 3, 
The Bible tells us of the occasion in which Satan, our adversary, our adversary, deceived Adam and Eve, and the Bible tells us that they sinned. And in Romans 5 and verse 23, we learn that on that occasion, sin entered into the world and death by sin. You see, from that point on, even until this very moment, there has and will continue to be, until the Lord returns, a battle of eternal significance that is constantly ongoing. We fight an adversary, the devil, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, and the interesting thing about our adversary is that he has already been defeated. And more than that, he knows that he has already been defeated. And yet, in his defeat... He seeks to harm the souls of mankind to the greatest degree possible. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, the Bible tells us about those who are entangled in the, in the web, if you will, of Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this world and that as the God of this world, he blinds the hearts and the minds of those who do not believe so that they cannot or will not see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus told Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Satan desires to have you. He desires to have you so that he can sift you as wheat. And that statement could be copied and pasted with the name of every individual in this room and in this world attached to it. The devil wants to have us. The, de the devil desires to have us and to have our children and our grandchildren. He wants to have our congregation. He wants to have the church. He wants to have the whole nation and the whole world in the palm of his hands. And so God says we have to fight him. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, the apostle Paul told Timothy that he needed to wage, or excuse me, war a good warfare as a good soldier of Christ. Fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 12. Endure hardness as a good soldier, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude verse number 3. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that, that we have to be mindful of the battle which we all find ourselves in and we have to be willing as good soldiers in the army of Jesus Christ to put our feet down to arm ourselves with the weaponry that God has given us and to fight the fight that has been placed before us. I want us to look this morning at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 13 which is a context in which Paul highlights this battle that we're in. It is the, uh, the setting for the armor of God, which we will, Lord willing, talk about this evening. But there's enough in these three passages that they need to be studied all by themselves. In Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 13, we have basically four points. It's a classic passage. It is a what and a how and a why. He'll tell us what the problem is. He'll tell us how we can deal with it. He'll tell us why we need to deal with it. And then he'll conclude by giving us a final word of exhortation to go about taking care of business the way that God would have us to do. I want you to look with me, first of all, at Ephesians 6 and verse number 10 at the what. And the what is simply the command to be strong. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Look at verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, he says, be strong in the Lord. I want you to look at that terminology, be strong. The word literally means be endued with power or be able or be capable. And this word, we find it several times in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, Paul said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, be able or be powerful or be capable. Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That word found again in the Greek New Testament, I can do, meaning I am powerful, I am able, I am capable. First uh, Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 12, Paul will say again, he will say, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Literally, he has empowered me or he has given me the capability of performing the ministry that he has placed in my hands. The command, according to Ephesians 6 verse 10, for every Christian is to be strong, is to be powerful, is to be capable. And notice he gives us a location. He says that strength or that power is found in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. In fact, note this point. It's important. The language that he's using, when he says be strong, it's in the passive voice. Meaning our strength does not come from within us. Meaning our, we are not the source of our strength, but rather our strength or our ability or our capability is something that is given to us. Well, who gives it? It is the Lord who gives it. In fact, really, the, the verse could be translated in this way. Allow yourselves to be strengthened. Allow yourselves to be made able or to be made capable. Why? Because on our own, really, we're nothing. And we don't have the ability all in our own. We don't have the capability of ourselves to be able to fight the battle in which we're engaged. Rather, we have a God who is the source of our strength. But notice this as well. Just because the Apostle Paul commands us to allow ourselves to be strengthened by the Lord doesn't mean that we have no role to play in that strengthening. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What Paul is saying in this passage is that you and I need to place ourselves in the position of being strengthened. In other words, we have the responsibility of going to the Lord in search of the strength that he provides. What has Paul said already about that strength in the book of Ephesians? Notice these two passages. Go back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19 and notice the prayer of the Apostle Paul as he expresses it on the behalf of the Ephesian saints. He says in verse number 16, 17, and 18, if I can summarize those passages, he says, I am constantly praying for you, and the reason that I am praying for you is because I want your knowledge to grow. I want you to know more about God, and I want you to know more about the things of God. And then in verse 19, 
in a list in which he identifies the specific items that he wants them to know about God, he specifies power. He says, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power. His power where? His power to us. I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him on the right hand of God. Paul, what are you telling me? What I'm telling you is this, that we have a God who has extended his power toward us. And that power which he extends toward us is seen most vividly in the fact that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That Jesus Christ has ascended and now sits at the throne at the right hand of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that God, uh, is the power that is extended to us. Then look at what he says in chapter 3. In chapter 3, again, another prayer of the Apostle Paul on behalf of the Ephesian saints. He says this, Ephesians 3 and verse number 16. He prays that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. We'll talk more about that passage later on in our study. But I want you to notice just at this point in the lesson that we have these two passages of power. Chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. The same power that raised Christ is extended to you. Chapter 3 and verse 16. My prayer is that you will be strengthened, that God will empower you, that he'll strengthen you. Well, no wonder then in chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says, I am commanding you to avail yourselves to the same power that we've already talked about in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. I want you to go to the Lord who is the source of strength and power and capability because you need it in order to fight the fight that we're all constantly fighting. Now here's a second question that this passage will ask us and that is, well, how does this happen? How do we allow ourselves to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? Look at verse 11, the first part of the verse. Paul says, put on the whole armor, put on the whole armor of God. Grammatically, this is the answer to verse number 10. It tells us how we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And here's something that I think is noteworthy. If you'll turn in your Bibles back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, you'll notice that Paul uses this language previously. He says, and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on and puts, uh, gives for the remaining verses uh, some meat, if you will, to this command. You see, he contrasts taking off the old man with putting on the new man. And what he does in Ephesians 4, verse 25, all the way through Ephesians 6 and verse number 9, is he says, here's what it looks like to put on the new man and take off the old man. What's the connection? The connection is one could argue that when he says put on the whole armor of God, that in a way that's tantamount to putting on the new man and everything that that involves and everything that that implies. So by the time we get to Ephesians 6 and verse number 11, Paul is simply summarizing everything that he said up to this point and making the exclamation that, look, being a New Testament Christian and being clothed with Christ and in Christ means fighting for Christ with the strength that Christ gives. Put on the whole armor of God. Sometimes we sing the song that talks about 
holding forth the panoply of God. And that word panoply is the word that we get from this word whole in Ephesians 6 and verse number 11. Put on the whole armor of God. In other words, this is a fully equipped soldier. Paul, what are you telling me? I'm telling you that you need to be strong, that you need to be powerful, and that the Lord will give you that power, but you have to go to him to get it. I'm also telling you that the way that you can exercise that power is by putting on the whole armor of God, by fully equipping yourself, being a fully equipped soldier. Do we have any examples of someone who's like this in the New Testament? Yes, we do. Look at Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Put your bookmark in Ephesians chapter 6, and I want you to be reminded with me of a passage that describes a brother in Christ who's one that we all should strive to follow. Look at Philippians 2.25. Paul describes Epaphroditus, and he describes him in several ways. He says, first of all, Epaphroditus is my brother. We all, every Christian, can be described as a brother or a sister in Christ. But then he describes him as my companion in labor. In other words, he's not only a brother in Christ, but when there's work to be done, he shows up and he works. But then he says, he's also a fellow soldier. He's a brother in Christ. He shows up when there's work to be done, and he also stands forward whenever, there's, uh, whenever it's time to engage in a spiritual battle. I can count on him is the idea. I wonder, could Paul say the same thing about me? Could he say that I'm a brother and a, fellow, and a companion in labor and a fellow soldier? Could Paul say, I can count on him. I know that he'll be there, or I know she'll be there whenever I need him. I wonder, we're supposed to put on the armor of God. We're to be a fully equipped soldier. But why is all of this important? Look at the second part of verse 11 and verse 12. Paul says, here's the reason why, so that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul, what are you telling me? I'm telling you that you need to be strong. And I'm telling you that the way that you become strong is by putting on the armor of God. And the reason why this is so important is because we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. Notice that he identifies our enemy. He says we fight against the wiles of the devil. The devil, he is described in Revelation 12 and verse 10 as the accuser of the brethren. He is described as an adversary who walks about as a roaring lion on the hunt, seeking whom he may devour in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. He is described as the prince of this world in John 12 and verse 31 and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 and verse 2. He is the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. And the Apostle Paul says in this passage that the devil who is our adversary and our accuser and the prince of the world and the God of this world, that he is someone who employs a number of different methods. Look at that word wiles. King James translation, <coughs> the literal meaning is methods. The idea is that the devil has a toolbox, if you will, that he has a variety of ways in which he can attack his prey, a number of weapons at his disposal, and he uses every one of them. He is described as a liar and a murderer in John 8 in verse number 44. You can be assured that anything that the devil says is not true. 
He is described as the tempter in Matthew chapter 4. He is the one who seeks to tempt us into turning our backs away from God and following him and the lusts and the desires of this world. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 13. The apostle Paul as he describes the devil and his workers says such are for such are false prophets deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ and no surprise for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light therefore it is of no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works what do you want me to know Paul I want you to know that you are fighting a fierce adversary I want you to know that the devil is real, Paul says. I want you to know that he is active, and I want you to know that he has a number of tools at his disposal and that he's going to seek to use every one of them because his primary purpose in life is to destroy you. He goes on and he mentions, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, principalities, literally a prince of a spiritual existence, against powers, which is in reference to the demonic authorities and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, which literally translated is the world powers of this darkness. What he's talking about are those powers that seek to influence the world for evil against spiritual hosts of wickedness in, in the heavenly places. It's a general term. It's encompassing all spiritual forces of evil. So we have set before us in Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 12, we have the devil and we have all of those who are, if you will, on his side. We have all of those who in the spiritual realm seek to fight against us and do the devil's bidding and even those in this world who serve the devil and seek to influence this world for him. Paul says we fight a great battle and this battle is spiritual. Notice, he says, it's not against flesh and blood. Remember 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Paul said, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. He tells us that the weapons of our warfare, our spiritual weapons, have the ability to defeat and to cast down every idea that exalts itself against God and to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That language, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, it's really a word picture. And the word picture is one that has to do with prisoners of war. And so the point is that our spiritual weaponry has the ability to take the thoughts and the ideas and the philosophies of men and to make them prisoners of war to Jesus Christ. And so they're marching single file behind him as he leads as a victorious king and a victorious warrior. We're fighting a battle for the soul. We're fighting a battle of ideas. We're fighting a battle in which those in this world who are uh, on the devil's side seek to influence us and our children and our grandchildren and our congregation and our community and our world to turn their backs away from God, to believe the lies that the devil places before them and to find themselves in complete and total destruction. So therefore, notice the exhortation. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse number 13, you need to prepare and you need to engage. Wherefore, he says, take unto you the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, 
stand. There are two points in this passage. Number one, take up arms. Notice the difference between verse number 11 and verse 13. In verse number 11, Paul said, put on the whole armor of God. And the language of putting on, Paul uses it in several places in his writings. And it has to do with putting on clean clothing, if you will. So you're to clothe yourselves with the armor of God. That's the emphasis of verse number 11. But verse 13 is different. He says, therefore, take unto you, take up, not put on, but take up. In other words, take up arms. This is a much more forceful way of describing it. And the verb that Paul uses would be used in the ancient world in a military setting to describe the event in which, while a battle is ongoing, a commander cries to his troops, take up arms. There is some, uh, there is some urgency there, and there's emphasis there. In other words, the battle is not about to begin, but it has already begun, and you need to take up your arms to be able to fight in this battle that is already raging. He then goes on and says, look at the end of the verse, having done all... In other words, having made adequate preparation. Tonight, Lord willing, we look at the parts of the armor of God and that will help us to understand more fully what it means to make adequate preparation. But just for a moment, I want you to go back in your minds to the point that we uh, explored back in, verse, uh, back in verse number 11 where we have this connection, it seems, perhaps to chapter 4, verse 24. I want to encourage you to go back in your Bibles and read Ephesians 4, 24 through Ephesians 6 and verse number 9. Look at all of the things that Paul describes about what it means to live right, about what it means to abstain from certain things, about what it means to have speech that honors God and to uh, treat your wife and treat your husband and treat your children and treat your brethren in the way that God would have you to live. Look at everything that Paul says about Christian living and then ask yourself, am I doing those things? Because those are the exact things that are required in order to properly and adequately prepare to take up arms against the enemy. You see, a soldier is not going to be effective in battling the opponent if the, if the soldier is only half prepared. And part of the soldier's preparation is his mindset. His mind has to be ready for battle. He has to make the decision that I'm going to fight and I'm going to stand and I'm going to give it all I've got. Otherwise, he'll be overwhelmed. As Christians, we have to make up our minds we have to prepare our minds. We have to make the determination, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines, but rather like Epaphroditus, I'm going to be an active participant in this battle. A soldier also in his preparation has to make sure, has to make sure that he has properly prepared the pieces of his armor. His, uh, uh, his breastplate, if you will, has to uh, be functioning properly. His sword has to be sharpened. His shield can't be damaged. The different parts, the tools, the weaponry that he's going to be used, it has to be in proper order. As a New Testament Christian, that tells me that my life has to be in proper order. I've got to not only make up my mind and be committed to the battle, but I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to practice. I'm going to have to live and conduct myself as a soldier or as a New Testament Christian should. Look at the last thing he says in the, in the verse. Verse 13, take up arms, prepare yourself, 
make adequate preparation and look at the last two words, to stand. After you've done all of these things, after you've made adequate preparation, he says, you need to stand. You need to engage. One of the parts, excuse me, of the Christian's armor is going to be that the feet are supposed to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's an interesting thing when you study Roman warfare, and of course you recognize that the, uh, the Romans would, would stand in unison and the attacks would come as, as someone would either throw a spear or a sword or try to, to charge into them, but the, the goal was to push them backwards, to make them fall. Well, no wonder then the soldier had to have his feet protected because if he's going to be able to stand up against someone who's trying to push him over, then he has to have a solid base. He has to have a firm foundation. His feet have to be protected. Well, when the Apostle Paul tells us about standing, about engaging, that ought to come to our minds, that we've got to have a strong foundation, that we've got to have a solid base, that we have to put our foot down, our feet down, planted firmly in the ground on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and no matter what happens, not allow anybody to push us off of our foundation. Another thing that comes to mind you know, one of the most effective tactics of the enemy is intimidation. I was thinking about, I was thinking about this, and of course, there is uh, in athletics, you know, when you're going to play another team, one of the things, one of the great weapons that you have at your disposal is intimidation. If you're driving somewhere to play a high school football game and you know that the opposing team is going to see you get off the bus, you put the biggest, strongest guys up first because you want them to see those guys get off the bus before the shrimps because it intimidates. That's the idea. You want somebody to look at you and you want to mess with their mind. You want them to be afraid and think they're defeated before the contest ever begins. You know the devil does the same thing. Do you remember in 2 Kings chapter 18 what the Assyrian Rapshiki did? He came as he surrounded the city, as he surrounded Jerusalem and choked off all of its uh, resources. He came into the city and he's speaking with King Hezekiah and with his servants and he begins to tell them all about how he's going to defeat them and how God is not going to save them. And the Hezekiah says, look, will you please speak in the tongue of the, the Syrian? We understand that language. We don't want all of the people to understand what you're saying. Rapshiki says, no thanks. And he spoke he spoke in the Hebrew tongue. He spoke so everybody could hear, from the king down to the, uh, down to the smallest child. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to scare them. Because he wanted to intimidate them. Because he wanted them to listen to him say, God will not save you. God will not protect you. You will die even to the last woman and the last child. He wanted to intimidate them. But then, of course, we know how that all turned out. God defeated the Assyrian Empire, and in Psalm 46, we have a divinely inspired commentary on how all of that unfolded. What's the point? The point is that when we make our preparation and we stand, we have to make a decision, number one, to put our feet down and not let anybody push us off our foundation. But number two, we can't allow ourselves to be intimidated. And we live in a world that, to put it mildly, seeks to intimidate anyone who would say anything against that which is sinful and that which is evil. 
If you're someone who seeks to expose a lie for what it is, you're going to be ridiculed. This is cancel culture that we're living in. We cannot allow ourselves to be, uh, to be intimidated into silence. We cannot allow ourselves to be intimidated into backing up and to giving the enemy even an inch because we know what they don't. And that is where we started, that this battle really is already over, that the devil has already been defeated, that the victory has already been won and it has already been assured. The devil is just trying to take captive everybody that he can. So what's our job? Knowing that we serve a God who is powerful and who is able, knowing that we serve a risen Savior who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, knowing that victory is ours, we stand and we fight. This morning, I simply want to ask you, can the Lord depend upon you to stand up and to be counted? Are you someone who is actively engaged in fighting in the army of God or are you someone who is more passive and who sits to the sideline and who is allowing themselves to be intimidated into silence and into doing absolutely nothing? If that's so, stop, change, get involved, be an active part of the work of God and the army of God because God calls every single one of us to do it. This morning, if you're not a Christian and you're not in the army of the Lord, then we... I want you to know that the Lord's invitation is extended to everybody. God wants all people to be Christians. He wants everyone to be saved and to be uh, a child of his. Believing in the deity of Jesus and repenting of sin and confessing faith in Christ, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. If we're willing to do those things, then God will add us to the church, we'll be a Christian, and we'll be part of his family. This morning, if you're a Christian but you've not been a soldier, make that right, change it. And if we can pray for you and help you in some way, we invite you to come and let that be known while together we stand.